Like it mean, like being a Christian means going to church. Being a Christian means praying a lot. Being a Christian means doing certain things. Uh, and we get blinded a lot of times to the reality of w- why we're even here uh, this morning. And so this passage cuts straight to the heart of that. And um, what we see is Paul and Barnabas, have they're hanging out in Antioch. They're resting, right, sharing about what God's done. And some guys that are believers kind of come in and start uh, bringing up a, a major concern that they have regarding salvation. And uh, it starts this big debate. And it's probably good in the long run for the church that the debate happens, but there's some dissension. And so uh, we're going to talk about that. So if you have your Bibles, uh, flip to Acts 15. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's Bibles around your chairs. Um, we care deeply about being in the Word of God. So we're going to be in it every week. Uh, we don't really throw verses up on the screen. Uh, we just want to be in the Word of God. So take that if you don't have one. Um, and we're going to pray and then start. Father God, thank you uh, for your word. God, thank you that we get to meet and talk about how good you are. Um, Father, those words that we just sang are so true that, that we have nothing before you, um, but we can lean on Christ, and, and he climbed the hill for us, Father. Um, just thank you that we uh, can be here and, and hear from you. Um, we do this every week. Take a minute to just pray and ask the Lord uh, to speak to you, to some baggage or anything, something that's distracting or something that you brought in, just ask him to, to get that out of the way so that you can uh, meet with him and enjoy him this morning. Pray for somebody around you. Um, Trevor always says, you know, we want to be in the habit of praying for other people. So just pray for someone else, the same thing. Father God, we, we love you. Um, pray that you would uh, deliver this message, Father, that the, the scripture would speak, um, that I wouldn't get in the way, and uh, yeah, you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so we're going to read uh, 1 through 21, uh, and yeah, okay, certain people, this is verse 1, for certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the Gentiles very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I will, rebuild, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. 
Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Okay, so at the end of chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas have returned to Antioch. Antioch was kind of their home base. It's where they left to go on the first missionary journey, traveled north. Um, and yeah, they, they shared the gospel. And, and on their way back, they appointed leaders and elders. And so they come back and they're in Antioch for maybe a year or more, um, sharing what God's done, uh, stories, resting, you know, just living life. And we see in verse 1 of 15, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. Essentially, they're just teaching, enjoying life, and, and sharing the gospel, and these men just show up, right? And they don't even confront Paul and Barnabas. They just show up and start saying, hey, um, in order to really be saved, like, there are a couple things you need to do. First of all, more than a couple, but uh, you must be circumcised, and you, you have to abide by the Mosaic law. So think about it. So we've got the group of, of Jews, right? The Jews are the ones who, who are Israelites, uh, you know, family heritage. They've tried to keep the law of Moses for, I mean, their entire lives, right, the life of their people. And Gentiles are, are any non-Jew. Um, and so they might not even have a framework. They might not even know that there exists such a law. And so imagine if you were a Gentile, um, which if you grew up uh, not in going to a synagogue or Jewish, then you are. But uh, if, imagine back in those times, right, Paul and Barnabas show up, share the gospel with you. You learn that you can have salvation through the Messiah who has come, and you accept Jesus as Savior, and then about two weeks later, a guy shows up and is like, yeah, I've been doing this for about 20 years, and don't you know you need to like, do some other things and really, really be saved? You'd be confused, right? There'd be this tension like, surely he knows a lot more than I do, right? Surely maybe there's something to this. Uh, and so there's this confusion, and it makes sense that Paul and Barnabas get furious, right? They get really mad, and there's this great debate. It says, um, Brought in verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And so one of the cool things we see is a lot of times we think of Paul as being a very forward person, right? He wrote the majority of the New Testament, seems very bold, very independent, he does what he wants. Uh, verse 3 and verse 4 really show how he submits to the leaders in the church. Like there is structure going on here, even though it's the very early church. And so uh, let's see, end of verse 2. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And so we see that despite the fact that Paul is very bold for the gospel, right, these guys know it's like, okay, in order to do this, we all have to be on the same page. And so the church decides, hey, who, you know, somebody should go down to Jerusalem. It says go up, but I think it's south and Jerusalem's high, right? So uh, go up to Jerusalem and, and really find out, talk to Peter, talk to James, talk to these other heads of the church, like, what do what do we really believe? Like, we know what we believe, but these guys are showing up and saying something different. So Paul and Barnabas start on this journey. Okay, verse 3, it says, The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This, made, this news made all the believers very glad. And significant, they, they marched right through Phoenicia and Samaria. And it shows that there's something different about them compared to kind of the Jewish culture at that time or before, because Jews avoided Samaria. Right? And we see that uh, in John 4, Jesus kind of does something strange. As a Jew, he marches straight through Samaria, and he meets this woman at the well, and she's like, why are you talking to me? Because the Jews couldn't stand the Samaritans because they didn't care. The Samaritans didn't keep the law of the Lord. 
they knew of the Old Testament law. They knew that there was structure and, and rules to abide by, but they just they didn't care. And so they just, the Jews just avoided them. Like, we're not even going to march through there. And so we see Paul and Barnabas go straight through. Um, and not only that, but they're, they're meeting with Gentiles, and they're talking about all the cool stuff that God has done. They don't have, there's no distinction for them between Jewish, non-Jewish, right? It's just people, okay? Keep going. Verse 4, it says, when they, made it to, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. So this is the big question, right? Like, really, you know, they have received salvation through Jesus, right? They're, they're in this now, but surely they need to do something, right? Like, surely it's not just salvation. And it's not surprising that the Pharisees are the one who, who brings this up, right? Um, now, we're talking about believers, right? People, uh, men that have uh, found salvation through Jesus, right? But they grew up as Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee. Pharisees devoted their entire lives to obeying the law of the Lord. I mean, they, they would create rules around rules around rules, rules around rules around rules, uh, to, to make sure that they were being obedient. So they would tithe, you know, spices out of their cabinets. They did whatever they possibly could to make sure they obeyed the Lord. They spent their, they spent their entire lives doing this. It's not surprising when the Lord comes and says, look, you, salvation only comes through my son, that they start to think, man, what have I done for the last 20 years? Like, what does that amount to, right? Like, are you saying the last two decades, three decades of my life, like, don't really mean anything? It doesn't. It doesn't merit me anything. And so they kind of bring up this debate like, well, surely we've done this, right? It's not real fair. They need to do it too. So this is the debate that they're bringing up. And so the apostles and elders meet to consider this question. Now, what we find in Scripture is when we encounter people, all the times they, they speak their mind, just like we do, right? I mean, you're around your friends, you're interacting, you're living life. And when you speak, you expose what's really going on inside of you. A lot of times, you know, insert foot into mouth. Those situations happen. And what we see here is what the Pharisees are saying is really just exposing what they really believe. They believe heavily in actions, right? That what I do really carries weight before the Lord. And this is why Jesus encounters them when we read through, like, the Gospel of Matthew, and he has so much, so, he has an issue with them, right? And he confronts them, and it's the famous in uh, Matthew 23, he says, woe to you. It's kind of like an omen. This ends poorly for you because you are so focused on what you do. You're so focused on the actions that you can perform. And really, the heart beneath those actions couldn't be further from what they appear. That it's not God. I mean, we've seen it throughout scripture. Uh, God sees the heart, right? And a lot of times people use that as like, God sees my heart. But really, that should be terrifying because God sees the heart. And that's what Jesus says to the Pharisees. He exposes them. He says, look, even though you can stand up and pray these righteous prayers and do all this stuff really well, I know your heart, and you're very proud that you've done it. And we see it throughout Scripture, right? We, uh, one of my favorite passages where, where this is true, people are just exposed when they meet the Lord. Uh, Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet, um, and he, obviously very, very holy guy. I mean, he threw his life at trying to bring Israel into right relationship with God. And he has this vision, it's in Isaiah 6, and he essentially encounters the Lord. 
And Jesus had later says, woe to you, to the Pharisees. Like, this ends poorly for you if you continue on this trajectory. Isaiah says, woe to me. He falls on his face, woe to me, for I am ruined. And the Hebrew word there for ruined can also be translated as undone. And it's like he, he's a rope that he has wound up very tightly, right? And there's what can be seen externally. And when it's all held together, it looks great. Then when he encounters the Lord, he says, woe to me. This ends poorly for me because I've been undone. It's like that rope that I've held tightly together is unwound and I'm exposed. That's what we see as people come to see God for, really, for who he really is. They start to see themselves for who they really are. And the motives beneath the actions reveal that we're just trying to be good enough to get something back from him. And so although the Pharisees have done these good things for years and years and years, the motives couldn't be less about God. And we do this too. Right? I mean, we like to lean on actions, right? We like to lean on what we've done. And so if we have a bad day, something happens, it's like, well, you know, at least I was nice yesterday, right? Or at least I gave more to the church yesterday. What do you know? Like, whatever. We do the exact same thing that they're doing. They're just leaning on the fact, well, when I, you know, when I feel like I don't have it all together, just at least I've been obedient, right? At least I'm trying to keep this law. They don't even know about it. We're all leaning on something to try to justify ourselves. And the best way to really figure that out for you, if you, you're like, man, I, don't, I wonder what I, what, what I find comfort in that's really false comfort. Normally, just like the Pharisees, one of the, the best things to do is think about what you throw on other people, right? They're saying, look, well, the Gentiles, they gotta be circumcised, right? Keep the law of Moses. Same thing for us, right? More often than not, we, we cast judgment on somebody else because we feel like we've done that well. And so, man, I've got a bad day, I lean on this, and, and I can keep that area of my life together, and it feels good when maybe there's just a whole mess over here. And then we start to say, well, they should, be, they should be keeping their life together like I am. And it just exposes the fact that we're leaning on something that can't hold the weight of our true sinfulness. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you, the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now, Peter's referring back to what we talked about in Acts chapter 10. So Peter is uh, praying, or he's about to eat, and he has this vision from the Lord, and there's this sheet that comes down from heaven, and there's all these animals on it, and a voice from the Lord says, kill and eat, Peter. Peter's like, God, I would never do that. Those are unclean things. I would never do that. And the Lord essentially says, um, Peter, don't, don't call what I have created unclean. The simultaneously, there's a guy named Cornelius, who's a Gentile, Roman centurion. Um, and although he wasn't Jewish, it said that he feared God. So he had a desire to, to walk with the God of the Jews. So he gets a similar vision, and it says, or a, a calling from the Lord, hey, there's this guy named Simon Peter, staying at Simon the Tanner's house, go find him, he's got a message for you. And Peter, they, they crazy situation, um, but Peter ends up sharing the gospel of Jesus, tell, talks about how all the Old Testament points to Jesus as Messiah. Cornelius and the people around him become believers, there's evidence of the Holy Spirit, and, and they receive salvation, they're baptized. Peter's saying, look, like we, we talked about all this, right? Like I had this vision, and Cornelius came, right? It was all really good. You actually were uh, glorifying God because of this as well? You don't remember that? So that's what he's talking about. And he says, 
in verse 8, you know, God who knows the heart, he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. Um, and there, so there is no discrimination. So a lot of times, uh, you know, we think uh, that once I receive the Holy Spirit, man, now it's time for me to shape up and pursue the Lord. Like, we think, okay, now that I have this desire to walk with God, now he will finally accept me once I get my act together. Now, the evidence of the Holy Spirit we see in the Old Testament a lot of times is speaking in tongues and belief. and There are other things, right? But one of the fundamental ways that we see the Holy Spirit move through us is a desire to take ourselves off the throne of our life, right, and put God on, in, in control. Like, let him take the driver's seat of my life and I remove myself. That is just evidence of the Holy Spirit. Like, you can praise God when you have that desire. That is a good desire. And a lot of times, so we have the Holy Spirit, and we think, okay, now that I have the Holy Spirit, now that I have this desire to turn and walk with God, I must do it well, and surely he will finally be happy with me, or surely he will finally forget the things that I've done back here, or the thing that I'm struggling with right now. What we see in verse 8, Peter says, God showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. God accepted them, and the evidence of that was the Holy Spirit. Our idea that we have to clean ourselves up once we have this desire to walk with God is, is completely incorrect. We are already accepted. There's nothing left to do. Once there is that desire to turn to God, there's already been fully, full acceptance. He is pleased. So there's nothing left to do. Peter says, uh, 8 and 9, he says, He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter says, look, there's no difference between those who have tried to uphold this law and those who haven't, right? Because you've tried doesn't make any difference because what you're doing when you're trying to be good and trying to obey these laws is really just promote yourself. Like, all it is is leaning on something to feel better about me. That's what you're doing right now. And so, really, you're no different than anybody else. We are all the same. And it's no different today, right? It doesn't matter what any of us in this room have done doesn't matter how many years you've come to church, how much money you've given. Like we, it doesn't matter if you've walked in for the first time today. Like there is nothing that we've done for the Lord that can merit anything because even what we've done is tainted by our desire to lean on it and say, hmm, I've done something, right? And so if you've come in for the first time or if you've been here for, for you know, whatever, since we started this church or however it may be, there's no difference Uh, let's keep going. Peter says that he did not discriminate between us, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that we, neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Peter's essentially saying, look, you can try as much as you want to try. And you can turn and try to put this on them, but we all know that we haven't been able to do it. In Galatians, Paul later says, he says, um, really, if you're going to try to uphold the law, you've got to hold up everything. And, and it's this realization that, look, just because you think you've tried, it's not enough. Uh, and he says, he purified their hearts by faith. Faith is a really interesting thing. Faith, a lot of t- people think that faith is a very, kind of an irrational, just throw yourself and believe something, right? Um, you know, it's kind of blind. That's not what we see in Scripture. Faith is actually very rational. Uh, one of my favorite books uh, that I've read is Mere Christianity. 
uh, it's written by C.S. Lewis, he's an atheist, uh, became a believer, and man, his writing is phenomenal. If you haven't uh, ever read it, it really serves two great purposes. One, it'll blow your mind, and if not, it'll put you to sleep. So if you can't go to sleep, I mean, it's like one of two great things. Um, I love what he says. He says, a Christian cannot get into right relation with God until he has discovered the fact of his bankruptcy. A Christian cannot get into right relationship with God until he has discovered the fact of his bankruptcy. He goes on to say, all this trying, trying to be good, trying to be holy, trying to earn something from God, all this trying leads up to the vital moment at which you turn to God and say, you must do this, I can't. And I think it's profound because that, that is exactly what faith is. Faith is seeing God as he really is, right? And seeing ourselves in light of who we are, right? Seeing ourselves truly in light of who God is. One of the best, exa- I mean, one of the best examples I have of, of having a misguided view of myself was, uh, if you think, think back to what you wore about 10 years ago, clothes, right? I mean, you, you think you're really cool, you think what you're wearing is, is appropriate, right? And then you're, maybe you have kids, they look back like, what are you wearing? But for me, that happened in college. Megan and I met uh, in the fraternity house, and man, I thought I was doing well, right? So I, I uh, had my relaxed bootcut jeans, I had my salmon-colored graphic tee, and I had my Jesus necklace to show that, like, I want to be in the fraternity, but not of it. And then I wore Birkenstocks that, that weren't even the actual sandals, they were, you know, covering my toes. And so um, Megan and I, started dating later that year, and uh, she honestly, she didn't remember me from the night that we met. It was fine. It doesn't matter. Uh, but later, when, what's even worse is later when she did remember me, she goes, yeah, I remember you. You were wearing a, like a salmon-colored graphic tee and um, Birkenstocks. And I was like, oh, the cringe moment, right? Because I was like, in, like I'm putting on a vest, right? I've shown up at the fraternity house trying to get a bid into the fraternity. I wouldn't be wearing my shabby clothes. But you cringe at that moment, right? Because you have a misguided view of yourself. The Pharisees, by bringing this up, reveal they've got a misguided view of themselves. C.S. Lewis' quote is really what he's saying is, look, when we come to see ourselves clearly, right? That's all, what it all comes down to is seeing ourselves clearly, discovering our true bankruptcy, and then turning to God and saying, I can't do this. You must. And that's faith. It's trust in Jesus for salvation. And so we're all trusting in something, right? We're all leaning on something to feel comfortable, to feel like we've done enough. And that's what you're putting your faith in. Um, one of my favorite other examples of, uh, of really this idea of faith is uh, when Megan was growing up and she had a toy that was broken, uh, she would go to her dad and say, Daddy, fix it. Always walking up, I mean, she tells the story, but always walking up to her dad and say, Daddy, fix it. Daddy, fix it. That is the basis of this faith. We come to this deep realization that it doesn't matter all the things that I've done. It still will not be enough. And we approach the Lord in faith, say, God, I trust that you are able to. Will you please fix this? My broken heart, right? My inability to be good enough. My inability to cover up the shame or the guilt that I have in my past. That's what simple faith is. Okay, let's, let's keep going. Um, verse 11, he says, No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. We are saved just like they are. There's no difference between us and them. We are all, the only way to be saved is through grace. 
grace is this really interesting thing. Grace is, a lot of times we think of grace as mercy. It's kind of like, you know, God's general just kind of patience. Um, and mercy certainly is this withholding of punishment, right? This patience toward us. Uh, it's not giving us what we deserve. And that's what God's been doing throughout history, right? With the Israelites, from the beginning of time, Adam and Eve have, were in perfect relationship with God. And they decide they want to put themselves on the throne of their life and take God off. And then it just causes, ha- wreaks havoc. And, and God is essentially patient with Israel throughout all the Old Testament, leading up to this point where he shows ultimate grace through his son, Jesus. Grace is mercy in that it's, it's patient, right? And it withholds what we deserve, but it's even more than that. It's, it's mercy on steroids. It's giving what we don't deserve. A couple of years ago before Megan and I moved up here, uh, we lived in Norman. We were working for crew. Um, and uh, it was my birthday's in January. So it was my birthday. Went out to dinner with my uh, mom and stepdad. And they knew that we were moving up here. And, you know, there's just additional expenses when you move into a house and things like that. And so needed to buy a lawnmower, a weed eater, and, and whatever. And so they were incredibly generous with us. They gave me a $200 gift card to Lowe's. Wow. And they just knew that we really needed to take care of some of that stuff. So Megan and I came home that night. And we're unloading everything, right? Uh, I think we'd come in from out of town or something, so carrying a bunch of stuff in. And uh, go to bed. Wake up the next morning. I'm very compulsive. I like to know where everything is. And uh, I can't. It's like 7.30 in the morning. I can't find that gift card. We put all the gift cards in the same spot. And, uh, and I can't find it. And I just want to make sure it's put away because, obviously, it's valuable to me. And I cannot find it. I cannot find it. I cannot find it. I end up just sitting down. And we're, we lived in a little, like, little Cracker Jack box, 600 square feet. I look out the front window, and I see Megan's car. I remember, oh, yeah, I, w- I couldn't carry it. We couldn't carry everything, so I just put the gift card and the card on top of the car, right? Well, uh, I ran out there, and, of course, it's not on top of the car, and I look out in the street. It's not on the – it's not – I mean, it's gone, right? It's not anywhere to be found. So I run back inside and call Lowe's and say, hey, can I cancel a gift card? Sure, you just need the gift card number. Hang up, call my mom. Hey, can we cancel this gift card? I'm really sorry. And she said, sure, we'll take care of it. So I – you know, go on, we go to work, we do whatever. And um, the next morning, I get an email that's a replacement $200 gift card. Wow, okay, cool, they got it figured out. Uh, 30 minutes or so later, I get a phone call from my stepdad. My stepdad says, um, hey, I just want to let you know, uh, you've got this gift card in your email inbox, but it's a little different than what you had because uh, when when we called them, somebody had already spent the $200. And I I I just started getting mad because what I realized was, this was costly for them, right? Like, this was not, it wasn't, I mean, $400 for my birthday, like, that's a lot of money. Didn't deserve that. And I just got angry because they didn't need to do that, right? And he actually, that's why he called me instead of my mom, because he knew I would get mad at my mom. But my stepdad's a big guy, and even over the phone, I'm like, oh, I can't say anything. But I was mad because I'm prideful, right? I have a framework. I understand receiving something because I'm a good son. Right? I get that. Right, I can do that. I can be a good son. And Wow, they give me a gift card and they're generous. Wow, it all makes sense. When I screw up, I don't have a framework for I'm a, I'm a bad son and I mess up. Hey, can we bless you? Like, that, that doesn't make sense to me and it hurts because it really exposes that I don't have it all together. But that's grace. Completely unmerited. Completely, uh, we're unable in any way to do it for ourselves and yet God says, let me do it for let me bless you. Can I bless you? That's the good news of the gospel. God didn't leave us in our dissatisfaction, our discontentment, our shame, and our guilt, and all the mess that we have in our lives and say, well, you know, I guess that's how it is. You tried. 
No, he breaks into the world through his son Jesus, and he, and, and he lives the perfect life that we should be living. Not just the actions, but also the deep heart motives, the deep love for the Father, the worship, and the honoring of him and everything that he does. He lives that perfectly up until this point where he dies the death that we deserve. And it's not just, although it is a bloody and gruesome death, what's deeper there is he takes all of the guilt and all of the shame. Everything that we've ever done, past, present, and future, he takes the wrath of God, the anger that God justly has for all of that, and dumps it on himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He, he, he knew no sin, but he became sin. He internalized sin. Every, all the shame and guilt that we feel, he allowed, to be, he allowed to absorb that and feel that and feel the weight of God's anger toward that so that in him we might receive righteousness. The grace is that he said, hey, in return for you giving me all of your crap, can I give you every good thing I've ever done in this world? every righteous deed, every, every miracle that I perform, defeating the 5,000, all those things, would you like that to be credited to you? Would you like God to view you as if you had done every single one of those things on every single one of those days? It does not make sense, but that's why it is an incredibly good news. It's the gospel. So the gospel means good news. It's an incredible deal for us, and it's an awful deal for him. And all we can really understand is that, wow, he just must love us in ways that we can't even fathom. Peter says, look, no, we believe the only way to be saved is through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they are. Let's keep going, verse 12. And we'll kind of finish this up. Treb's going to really cover this last section a lot when he gets back. But uh, verse 12 says, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon's described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Right? Simon, Simon already told us, right? This already happened. We all know. Like, we were all there. Like, maybe, I don't know if they were all there. But they, you know, they, are, they know the situation. And then he quotes Old Testament. He says, even God has says this. God said this in the Old Testament. He quotes Old Testament scripture saying, even all the Gentiles will bear my name. And then 19, he says, It is my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest time and is read on the synagogue, in the synagogues on every Sabbath. What, what James is doing here is he's really appeasing two groups, right? What he's saying is, look, I agree with Peter, right? We all know, like, we're, we're not misguided. We don't have misguided perception of ourselves. We see ourselves as God sees us, and we are broken, and as C.S. Lewis, Lewis would say, we're bankrupt, right? But there is a response to grace. So he says, hey, let's, let's not make it difficult for them to turn to the Lord. Like, there's nothing they can do to earn anything from God. But once they have tasted of the grace of God, once you've tasted of the goodness that he has given you, there's a natural response. And it's, it's turning and being different from the world. Uh, the, <clears throat> he didn't do this, but if my stepdad would have called me the next day and said, hey, I've got a lot I need to do in the yard. Would you mind coming over and, and helping me tomorrow morning? It'd just go a lot faster if you could help me. What I wouldn't say is I wouldn't say, well, you know, I'm kind of tired and I'd like to binge some Netflix. I wouldn't say that. I would say, absolutely, what can I do for you? You've just been, 
I mean, of course, like, I would love to. You've been too generous with me. It's the same thing we see in Scripture. It's the same thing we see in our lives. The appropriate response is a pursuit of God that is completely free, is completely out of gratitude and thankfulness, and not because there's anything we need to do for him, right? I would respond to my stepdad not thinking, oh, he, he can take away that Lowe's gift card. Same thing with the Lord. Like, we respond to him knowing he's accepted me. I have merited nothing from him. I've done nothing to deserve this. How could I not respond? And so he's saying, look, let's, let's just write them and, and say, hey, here are some ways that you can be different. Here are some ways, because the Gentiles were doing all kinds of things. So those things look weird. They, they're, some of them are weird. Um, that's what they were doing. And so he says, let's, let's, let's write him a letter. And so uh, later in 15, it really goes into that playing out. But to kind of conclude all of this, it begs the question, are you fighting spiritually? Like, is there a spiritual fight in you currently? If there is, what kind of fight is it? Are you on this fight to hope that someday, if you do enough, God will forget this, X, Y, or Z? Or someday, if you do enough, this person will accept me, or I will finally come to grips with who I am. Like, is that the endless climbing battle that you're on? C.S. Lewis says, we cannot get into right relationship with God until we've discovered our bankruptcy. There is freedom. As Christians, we don't have to have it all together. It's the difference between every other major world religion. Every other major world religion says, do this, this, and this, and ultimately you will receive some kind of enlightenment or some kind of satisfaction or some kind of acceptance from God. Christianity actually praises, it's almost a prerequisite to really expose the fact that we can't. It's impossible. And only then can we taste of the Lord. The second side of that is, uh, are you, do you not have a spiritual fight? Is there really, is there maybe apathy? Is there uh, no desire to really turn and be different from the Lord? I think the gospel is the answer to every question, right? I mean, really, the gospel is the answer. It's the meaning of life. It's the answer to the meaning of life. And so if you struggle, like we all do on random days, right, with apathy and, and noticing that there is sin in my life that, man, I should turn from, the gospel is the answer. Very righteous prayer is saying, God, I don't see myself clearly today. I'm certainly not seeing you clearly because if I saw how really bad off I am and I saw how good you've been to me, man, I would chase after you and respond a certain way. So if you find yourself in kind of apathy or, or, or lack of desire to walk with God, pray that the Lord would fuel your gratitude and your thankfulness by exposing who you are and just revealing how incredibly gracious you've been. All this comes down to Galatians 5.1, Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. You can taste of that freedom today if you haven't before. People will be, will be down here for you to pray with. Um, if you've never stepped from uh, a wrong relationship with the Lord and trying to appease him into right relationship with him. Let's pray.